Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an ag arts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. The rural environment can offer vast landscapes, wildlife, a lower cost of living, and tighter local communities. But often these very benefits can come at a cost. The rural economy can be based on extractive practices, and a tight community can become exclusive. Today we listen to an interview with Taylor Borby, who grew up gay in center North Dakota in the middle of the fracking boom. He has just published a new memoir called Boys in Oil about the challenges he experienced and how he had to navigate as a person of difference in this environment. Taylor Borbery is a nonfiction writer, poet, and activist. In addition to Boys in Oil, he is the co-editor of Fracture, Essays, Poems, and Stories on Fracking in America. Borbery regularly speaks around the country on issues related to extractive economies, queerness, disability, and climate change. He is the Annie Tanner Clark Fellow in Environmental Humanities and Environmental Justice at the Tanner Humanities Center at the University of Utah. When I struggle, I close my eyes, breathe, and go there, to the bend in the Missouri River where, when the light strikes the surface of the water just right, it sparkles, and the wind and leaves and orchestra of the prairie snap into sharp relief. There's the croak of the northern leopard frog, the cut banks slough into the sepia-stained river, The piping plover trembles across the wet sand, searching for its nest. In my mind, there's an eagle, sharp and lean, perched against a backdrop of the darkening Cottonwood River bottom. In the bottom, somewhere, a lynx slinks among the lush grass. A log, stripped of its bark, smooth to marrow, is submerged in the river, And then the armored ghost comes into my imagination, larger, more fully grown now than when I saw it years ago. It's whitened with old age. Its barbels trace the murky river bottom. Its its small eyes barely detect any light. The sturgeon hunts, as it always has, for 70 million years. It's here, in the dark bottom of things, where I have gone in my journey. Like a grain of sand pushed by the current, my life has meandered, slowly shifted farther downstream, where it inches toward a new beginning as I continue to search for the deep current to find the place where I am meant to be. 
Welcome, Taylor. Thanks for having me, Mary. It's fun to have you here. And in the passage that you just read, you talked about searching for the very bottom of things. And I think that's what you do in your book, Boys in Oil. And the book begins and it ends with the prairie. The prairie was once the bottom of the sea. In the book, you're searching for a foundation for your life. So what significance does the prairie have for you and what kind of a foundation did it provide? The prairie is such a magical landscape. I mean, it's one of the most biologically diverse ecosystems on the planet. It's more diverse than the Amazon rainforest, and yet we call it flyover country, partly because the landscapes aren't immense in height, but they are in width, and they make us feel small. But that diversity means that For me, the prairie has so many different voices, so many different life forms that it thrives in its diversity. And for me, that was such a magical place to grow up because it also allowed me to watch how light works. I mean, in the golden hour at about 5 p.m. in November, the prairie is just ablaze with glory. And I thought it was like, growing up in an oil painting every day. It just was this immense landscape that I thought I could just run forever and never reach the end of it. And so I think for me, it was a place that allowed curiosity to bloom and blossom. And and that was such a wonderful place to grow up in terms of thinking about an inner landscape that was reflected in the physical landscape. And you're out there in nature and and in the prairie, in those opening passages, you're you're foraging, you're fishing, um, you're really taking in that diversity. And you know, I kept thinking about the white settlers who came upon that prairie, thinking it was nothing but a pile of weeds to plow up, and how you know, and how tragic that was because we lost a whole ecosystem. But you are also a person of diversity. Um, you were a out gay man and a disabled man who grew up grew up in that environment. And unfortunately, as a young child at school, you were bullied. So I would imagine that that trauma would be with you the rest of yeah. your life. How did it affect you, that bullying in grade school? I think that's why I probably was out in nature so much. There was this big open world and I didn't feel that the great blue heron was judging me or, you know, your relationship with a northern pike, if anyone's a fisherman who's tuning in, is pretty straightforward. You know, they're kind of like pissed off teenagers. If you get in their space, they're going to strike what you're throwing at them. It was very clear what the relationship was and... I would go to these hills or out into the creek beds and it was a place that could hold all of that. It could it could hold what I was feeling um, because I grew up in a very small town. I mean, I grew up in a county without a stoplight. I went to school with the same 22 people um, my whole experience. And it was just a place where 
when you're different, it it's a hard place to fit in, which is so confounding to me, knowing how biologically diverse it is that I found it more of a monoculture way of thinking. You know, boys need to play football. They're going to grow up to be ranchers or farmers or coal miners. There's uh, things, as I say in my book, don't survive if they're tender on the prairie. You know, you have to be pretty hardy. But the way that I had to survive was by largely leaving the human community I lived around, you know, that it was, there was something in me that I didn't even know that other boys sniffed out, you know, and that's been an experience well into adulthood that there are um, particularly certain type of men can sniff out if you're gay pretty quickly or if you're just different and that becomes pretty threatening. And so there's not really a recovery from that because we're still living in times where I would say in much of America, if I even went out to dinner, let's say with a boyfriend and put my hand on his thigh, that could be a death sentence. You know, I mean, it could certainly be a sentence for harassment, but much worse as well. Oh, that's, that's a lot to deal with. And you know, you know, for a small child and for an adult man to continue to have to face that kind of oppression, and you were in center. I love, I love the, <laughs> I love the name of the town. You were in center. You were in center, North Dakota, population five hundred forty-one, and you, you pretty much by the time you were in high school, you'd had it with center, and so I, I think it's. Remarkable. You convinced your parents to move to Bismarck to a larger city. And what were the advantages? What did Bismarck have to offer you that um, you certainly weren't going to get in center? Well, it had stoplights. But I mean, you know, Bismarck only being 40 miles away. You know, it was about 100 times bigger than center, just population-wise. It had a symphony orchestra. It still does. It has a junior college and a private liberal arts Benedictine college. So I could go to plays and things like this. There were advanced placement classes. And it was a, it was an incredible gift that my parents gave me. I mean, bullying was so bad my eighth and ninth grade year that I just said to them, you know, either we move or I'm commuting for school every day. I mean, that was really kind of my ultimatum. And they they gave me this great gift. We moved. My mom had to commute back to center, whereas my dad was commuting to Bismarck when we lived in center. So they they switched commutes. And in some ways, it was even more convenient because my mom could carpool. And center just, or Bismarck, excuse me, you know, I was in a class, my graduating class was nearly the size of center. And just with that amount of students in one grade, you're going to find people. You know, I had people who loved making jazz music. I loved people who, I mean, I had people in my life who loved acting and plays. I could find people who wanted to sit at coffee shops and have conversations. 
even as high schoolers, which just wasn't really a part of my life prior to that because I had really gone into myself in my final two years in center of just, I need to survive. I need to figure out, like, I don't know what's going on. I just played my saxophone and piano all the time and uh, didn't have a lot of, of light in my life, I guess. Yeah, it seemed to me that when you're in center, you took refuge in nature and the beginning of your interest in arts. And then when you moved to Bismarck, you were really allowed to flourish in the arts. As you say, there was a symphony orchestra. There, You were reading a lot of literature. Um, right. You were into music. You were into drama. All of yeah. those um, arts really buoyed you, I think, when you were in Bismarck. Yeah, I'm talking to... Taylor Borby here at Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land. We're talking about his brand new memoir, Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land, published by Norton. So then after high school, you went to St. Olaf College. This is all, of course, documented in the memoir. What was that experience like? I know you were really homesick in the beginning. I mean, I'm such a mama's boy, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I've been a type one diabetic since I've been five. And so I didn't really travel a lot away from my parents. And then I went to college, which my sister went to a year of college, but I'm the first one in my family to finish college. And I chose to go to college, you know, 500 miles away from home. (laughs) And I didn't know how to study. I didn't know what college was. I knew how to do laundry and stuff, but it didn't matter um, if I got up in time. I was in charge of me. And I think all of that was compounded and having to make new friends again after feeling oh, I'd gotten to Bismarck and I had some friends there and now I left them and I have to go through this process again. But the world, after that first semester, after my homesickness sort of faded away, it was like the world went from black and white into color. And that's how I felt when we moved to Bismarck. But going to college was even more so. You you encountered thinkers you had never heard of, you know, who had ever heard of Soren Kierkegaard in high school, you know, but in college, it's like Novocaine in your brain. And you have to form some study groups with people to figure out what Uncle Soren's saying, you know, but St. Olaf was just incredible to me because it was such an artistic haven. I mean, it's known for its its choral tradition. Its music is stellar And it was just a heightened level of curiosity. I learned that there was this magazine called The New Yorker that people subscribed to and read, you know, or I mean, it was such a bragging point on a page, you know, 104 in that great novel, The Great Gatsby. You hear, oh, Jay Gatz went to St. Olaf for two weeks and worked as a custodian. And it was this point of pride in American literature. Go, I'm I'm going there, too. And so it was just this safe haven for me of curiosity and exploration and also fully admitting to myself that I was a gay man. I mean, I 
knew I was attracted to, uh, to men in high school. I knew earlier in middle school, but it was something you dare not say. And at St. Olaf, I finally came out to friends and, and that was such a wonderful process for me. That must have been a relief. Yeah. It was. It really was. Well, and at this time, you were also dealing with disability. You're really a person of double difference, um, being gay and disabled. You mentioned your type 1 diabetes. Right. Maybe you could tell the listeners the difference between 1 and 2. And then you had, were on the career, on a musical career, and had the unfortunate experience of losing part of your thumb in a construction accident. So two weeks after graduating high school, I I was working an assembly line job, which is very hard work, repetitive tasks. You have to maintain your focus for eight hours, um, a, you know, a day. And if you have a mind like mine, it can wander easily. And this job was going to help pay for college. It was working for Bobcat, where my father spent his career as a welder. And I was building these doohickeys called rollers and idlers, just these metal pieces that had to be pressed together by a press. And the press I was using operated by a button, but you only needed one hand to press the button. So the other hand was free to move around. And I accidentally left my left thumb over the hole of where the press was going down. And the left thumb is the octave key for saxophonist, which is the most important key on the instrument. And it lobbed off my thumb like a hunk of butter. I mean, I didn't even really feel it. I felt sort of a pinch. And then I went into, you know, instant shock with adrenaline. And I guess, you know, if there's a, a fortunate part to that is that it didn't take off more because had it sort of clipped the knuckle, they would have removed the whole of my thumb. So it's still on piano can reach a per perfect octave like my right hand, but it was just short enough uh, for my saxophone that I had to leap to the octave key, which slows down your technique. And we were looking at, you know, how much would it be to redesign the saxophone? Well, several thousand dollars, you know, and it was, I mean, that was another source of trauma. You know, you're trying to get back into playing music at the level you were used to, Every time you miss a note or when your thumb has to rotate up, you're reminded of that accident, that trauma there. And so that was part of um, going into college and fueling part of that homesickness we talked about earlier because my whole identity was wrapped up in music. I wanted to be a symphony conductor and this was my main instrument. And now I didn't do it or when I tried, I would spend more time weeping in the practice room than playing my scales and arpeggios. And then the diabetes, that's been a part of me since I was five. And for listeners, type one is you're born with a genetic predisposition to it. And there has to be a disruption to your endocrine system. Most people who are diabetic, who are type one diabetic, get diagnosed after a severe flu or pneumonia or something like this that sort of shocks their system. Um, but I was diagnosed in the springtime. And so there was nothing going back 
um, like a cold that we could point to, though there is increasing research that growing up near fossil fuel and extraction sites can trigger endocrine disruption. And, you know, I grew up four miles from the coal mine where my grandpa spent his entire career in the power plant where my mother spent the entirety of hers, whereas type two is more, uh, it's related to lifestyle, you know, being overweight or maybe it runs in your family and later in life, um, things start happening that push you on a path towards type two, but that can be sort of regulated or kept in check through diet, exercise, pills. Uh, If it isn't, then it can become full on type one, but Type one, when someone is diagnosed as type one, it's that you're born with it and that it's just a ticking time bomb until it it gets activated. For me, it happened at five. I have a good friend that it happened to him at 25. I had a friend earlier this year from college. She's 34 and she just got diagnosed with type one diabetes. And so... Um, that that's been a part of my life now for nearly 30 years. And it's, um, well, it impacts every waking moment of my day. And even when I sleep, you know, it can wake me up. Right. I don't, I, I don't think people who quite understand, who don't know the illness, that it's a constant calculation, a constant worry, a constant, you know, self-medication, a constant, you know, regular trips to be monitored into the doctor and oh yeah i mean i feel like i'm in warfare with the nations of italy and france you know i love pasta i just can't eat it you know it's very uh hard on my body and you're right it's a constant calculation of okay if i'm invited to a potluck do i need to bring a backup meal just in case there isn't really anything i can eat there or things like this. I mean, I don't drink beer, for instance. Um, it, it just messes with my body in really negative ways. So it's a constant evaluation and you're checking in with your body, wondering where your blood sugar is, if it's going up or down while you're trying to still be a good community member, you know. So you're finishing your college at St. Olaf. You've a double difference, and you've come out there, and then uh, when you graduate, your aunt outs you to the rest of your family. And this was a huge moment in your life uh, because your parents, you know, didn't embrace you for that. And so you became estranged from your parents. So this was another huge heartbreak, um, for you. Yeah. Yeah, This, I mean, this happened on, uh, my nephew's, my oldest nephew's fifth birthday. I was working a food supply warehouse job. I was leaving in a month for seminary out East at Princeton. I wasn't sure I wanted to become a pastor, but I thought, oh, it's more liberal arts learning. You have to study philosophy. You get to learn Hebrew, all these things. And I get to go to Princeton, you know, for $1,000 a year. It wasn't lived down the block from where Albert Einstein last lived. It was a great gig. And in 2009, the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the tradition I was raised in, had voted to 
um, ordain openly gay people, um, men and women. And, and that was incredible. I mean, I was sharing those sort of articles online and in my family, the thinking sort of goes, if you share something, you must believe it. There's no sort of arguing a different viewpoint than the one you might personally hold. So the reasoning would be, well, if Taylor's sharing articles about this, he must be gay. Well, in this case, it is true. But to have, you know, a family member not come to you and ask you directly, but go behind your back and say, you know, I'm I'm worried Taylor might be gay. Well, you don't have to worry about my being gay. I mean, I am gay. Even if I'm not gay, you don't have to, it's not a worry. Uh, you, We can have a conversation, but things really hit the fan. I mean, it, it, it was really bad, as I write about in that book, of just my parents not being at a place where they could deal with it. And it, it was both, from a sort of religious perspective, but also a class perspective of being accused since I finished college that I thought I was better than them. And it was a a lot of psychological trauma in those weeks after that. Oh, I can imagine. And then um, that set you off as it's common, and it's a common experience um, with people with difference when they're not accepted by their families, especially, you know, they're not accepted by the society at large that it weakens your mental health. And so you had periods where you were suicidal. Right. Yeah. Can you talk about that? It's something that's on my mind a lot, especially with this book. And, you know, you make choices when you put a book out in the world. Am I going to go there? Am I going to share this? Um, and I've chosen to share that. I wouldn't claim to tell anyone what they should or shouldn't do in their own uh, life or writing. But just yesterday, you know, the Trevor Project, um, which is an LGBTQ plus advocacy group, just released that, you know, every year, uh, queer youth, uh, the, the suicide contemplation rate is always huge. You know, it's it's nearly one in two. I mean, it just came out yesterday that there's increased suicidal ideation amongst queer youth, and it is now as high as one in two. It's previously been in sort of the 40th percentile. Um, those numbers change when you're talking about transgender youth or or uh, queer youth of color in particular. Those numbers get higher. And Part of it is about what we're talking about, you know, that we 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 have those cliches of, you know, uh, blood is thicker than water or family never, you know, abandons you. I mean, my family abandoned me. You know, they thought I was going to burn in hell. And that's some real psychological damage for a person, no matter how old you are. I mean, it's why people never came out of the closet and so I had struggled with that in different ways of thinking. My my parents did so much for me growing up in their, um, their lives were not easy. Their lives were uh, blue collar work lives, dad working the graveyard shift, you know, putting me in saxophone lessons. It was incredible. I mean, they bawled at my college graduation 
And then to have that foundation just crumble, uh, how can it not send you spiraling? And I come from a culture where you don't seek uh, mental health help, you know, and finally I had to get over it and go, I'm not doing well, I'm not getting out of bed, or I'm thinking I'm going to jump off a bridge down from where John Berryman did in Minneapolis. This is not this is not a healthy way of dealing with things or moving through the world. Um, but I, I want people to really understand that that is happening now. I mean, that we need to be open and affirming in our conversations that it cannot go unsaid, you know, that uh, queer youth are listening to the conversations we're having. They're seeing the social media posts. And one of my goals with this book is, you know, to get a boy to take the pistol out of his mouth, to get the girl to take her head out of the noose. You know, I mean, life should be big and beautiful and it should be filled with love because of who you are. And when you don't feel that, uh, the other option can be very tempting. No, um, we all need to open our hearts to youth like you. The scene in the book where you're standing on the bridge, you know, just sent chills up my spine. It was really dramatic and moving. And yes, let's try to support our youth and get over our biases, however we got them. You know, you can get them through culture. You can get them through religion. You can get them through all sorts of different venues. But um, eventually, let's hope that we can have a wider perspective on these right. issues. Yeah. Thankfully, we're able to pull your um, life back, you know, put it back on a, on a steady path. After you graduated, you found yourself in the Twin Cities. You did find some people that supported you and yep. are still in your life, as I understand. Yep. And you got a graduate degree at... Yep. Hamlin in the uh, Twin Cities, you get very serious about your writing. You're also a visual artist. You're really real talented. You're a musician, you're a visual artist, you're a writer. What else do you do? Um, <laughs> I don't even want to ask. <laughs> so, so with a graduate degree, yeah. and again, one of the things you've brought up here is that your first generation um, that went to college from your family. And that's another special category that has a lot of pressure um, to it, to the, to the kids that, you know, finish high school, then go to college and the parents have not gone to college. So it's, hard. It's disorienting. You don't have that kind of support that you would have with parents that would say, oh, let, you know, let me see what your schedule is. Okay, now you need to get a history course in here, you know, or oh, let's get some good science course. You know, you don't have that. And, uh, and you don't, you know, you don't have anybody that really understands what you're going through whatsoever. And so that was another difference. So you're a man of triple difference we have there. <laughs> so, so now you're out of graduate school and you find yourself back in North Dakota and you're documenting 
the Bakken oil boom. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that experience. When I left for college in 2006, that was the year the Bakken oil boom began in northwest North Dakota. North Dakota had had two previous oil booms, but uh, the first one sort of starting in the 50s when oil was first discovered, the second in the late 70s, busting in the early 80s. And they had gotten all of the easy access oil, if you can kind of imagine you know, a glass of, of soda with ice cubes in it, and you've sort of sucked the main part of it out, but there's still a little soda between the the ice cubes, but you don't know how to get it with the straw that you're using. Well, in the 90s, this, you know, engineer who probably, know, you know, owns multiple tropical islands now developed this thing called a whip stock that over several thousand feet allows you to bend pipes so it can approach oil horizontally, not just vertically. So you don't have to drill multiple pinholes into the soil. You can drill down, but then bend the pipe and snake it upwards of two miles in any direction to slurp that residual oil up. And once that hit, Northwestern North Dakota exploded. I mean, at the height of the boom, it was the second largest oil producing state in the country after Texas. Towns, I mean, I can think of one town, Watford City, a small town of maybe a thousand people. When I graduated in high school, by 2014, it was over 10,000. I mean, it was doubling in size every two years. And that means you need more restaurants, more bars, you need better highways, you need uh, more nurses, all of these things. It it was housing. I remember there was no housing. So people, I, I remember people were commuting on light planes from like Wisconsin every day, flying back and forth. I, I mean, you know, there were people literally living in ice fishing houses in the middle of wheat fields. I mean, there were people who moved their campers in that, you know, Farmer Johnson said, oh yeah, you can park your camper on my you know, out my field for $1,200 a month. You know, I mean, there was a point where Williston, North Dakota, an apartment there was more expensive than New York City. It was, you know, and Williston, let me just remind you, does not have the Met or, you know, good Chinese takeout, you know. And so it exploded. And I was back there in 2013, November of 2013, teaching creative writing workshops in the Bakken oil boom. And it was just incredible. I mean, the horizon flickered and they were burning off so much natural gas that you could see North Dakota from space. It gave off more light pollution than Minneapolis-St. Paul, but it was effectively the planet's largest bonfire because oil was booming so much that it was more cost-effective to burn off the natural gas, which in North Dakota is a byproduct compared to, let's say, if we're talking about fracking in Pennsylvania or uh, anywhere in the Marcellus where people are going for natural gas, it's a byproduct in the Bakken. And so they'd simply light it on fire and send it into the atmosphere rather than slowing down developing technology to capture it. Uh, So it, it, it was interesting to me to see how economics builds that in, that we can afford to burn that off because 
business is booming and to slow down is to lose money. But of course, this came with incredible risk. I mean, uh, we don't keep track of the missing, murdered, and indigenous women. We have no clue how many missing indigenous women there are who have been trafficked through that part of the world, been removed from uh, the reservation that the boom surrounded, the Fort Berthold Reservation. But because of that lack of infrastructure, it allows other things to come with it, like increased drug trafficking, human trafficking. It's 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 a faraway part of the world. You know, I mean, it is a far distance from Minneapolis-St. Paul, from Denver. It is very, very rural, and it changed so much of the landscape I knew. I mean, because money was flowing in at just incredible rates. And what happened to the Missouri River? So part of it is that, you know, oil spills, of course, were increasing exponentially. And for a while, the state was recording, you know, every spill, everything from as small as one gallon up to, you know, several hundred thousand gallons and stuff. And in 2016, a Duke University study confirmed, in fact, that the Missouri River is radioactive because, of course, it's the main watershed. All streams go to the Missouri River and water finds a way, oil finds a way, chemicals find a way. You know, you would read these stories of, you know, 200 gallons of some chemical spilled into a little creek. Well, that creek eventually went to a larger creek and then made its way into the Missouri River. And so uh, the water that is used throughout the breadbasket, uh, we have radioactive wheat, you know? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's stunning. It's horrific. You put together a, another book called Fracture. It was an anthology of excellent environmental writers who uh, interpreted, documented, uh, meditated upon all of these problems. And then you were at Iowa State University in the writing program there. And guess what shows up? The Dakota Access Pipeline comes right at the edge of Ames. So, so you became an activist against the pipeline and spent a night in jail for that. And what, um, how did that night in jail shape your resolve to deal with these issues? Yeah, it was, you know, one of the most expensive, uh, vacations of my life. And I had, uh, Thankfully, some good guardian angels who footed my arrest bill in the Boone County Jail. I mean, I'm always scared when I move to a new place because it seems that the fossil fuel industry follows me. I mean, I was trying to put 800 miles between me and the Bakken oil boom while I was in the MFA program to work on my first few books or get some writing going. And I arrived in August and in December, there was a big headline in the Des Moines Register that this pipeline was being announced. And then there was a town meeting in Ames and I showed up and then it was, you know, all hell for me broke loose. I was traveling around Iowa and around the region telling people what I knew and what I had seen in the Bakken and was doing research to understand even more deeply about not only this pipeline, but the volatility of Bakken crude oil. 
And I would go to meetings. I would go to colleges to try to whip up a little bit of a fury to say, you don't, you don't know what's coming to your state. You know, 25 million gallons of oil is going to flow across your farmland every day. And it is volatile and pipelines break and rupture. And I got to a point, I went back home to go to the protest at Standing Rock for a few days and then came back to Ames right before school started. And I got arrested. I was the first person arrested in Iowa over the pipeline on August 31st, I think it was, 2016. And I remember having to say to my students, now tomorrow I'm going to do something that might get me taken to a place that I'm not in control of when I leave or, and I, you know, I didn't want to say what I was going to do, um, but I, they understood. And I said, if you don't get an email from me by 9 PM, we won't be meeting the next morning because I won't be able to physically be here, you know? And I, I just felt for me, you know, four generations of my family have worked in coal, oil, and natural gas. And, uh, we're not rich like the Rockefellers. I grew up in a trailer house in a county without a stoplight. And I found that I needed to test my own metal. That I, when I think of that river being radioactive and that my nephews still live in Bismarck and that they're drinking radioactive water, I wanted to be able to say to them, you know, I wrote letters to the editor. I went to town hall meetings. I, I, produced an anthology against fracking, uh, I wanted to be able to say I did almost everything I could uh, to stop this, you know, and, and for me, that meant putting my body on the line, which of course was difficult because uh, you're a diabetic and uh, I didn't have access to my blood glucose monitor. I, they almost took my insulin pump off of me when they were patting me down and I said, oh my goodness, you can take that, but then we're going to have a far more interesting night in jail, you know? And it it was a very serious judgment call on my part to get arrested and that there was a lot more than just symbolism at stake. Um, not only the health of my the planet, the health of my body in a very real way uh, was hit home in that moment for me. Yeah, that's a very tense moment in the in the book. So Taylor Brorby, you end this book where you begin with a description of the prairie called Caprock. In the petroleum industry, Caprock means non-permeable formation that may prevent oil, gas, or water from migrating to the surface. How does the speaker of poison oil relate finally to the word Caprock? It's a very real issue for me right now because that shallow sea that begins the book, which is where trilobites are swimming and trilobites, of course, people are burning them every day in their cars. We now call them oil. They've transfigured into oil. That same landscape that my friend Sandra Steingraber says no human eye has ever seen is now under assault again, under the cap rock, that it is this rock where current technology is being developed uh, called carbon capture and storage 
that will liquefy carbon dioxide from ethanol plants around the country or fossil fuel plants around the country be moved through pipeline and be put back underground where it will supposedly stay forever and that it'll be a natural holding tank. And so Caprock for me is this insane space that no one thinks about, that we're walking across every day that is literally being brought to the forefront of whether we are going to have a planet we can continue to live on, that it is a holding area like I think so much of the prairie is for, it's been the testing ground for most of our worst ideas, even though it's supposed to be this incredibly diverse uh, strong yet relational landscape, but we put our worst ideas on the prairie and we ask it to hold a lot. And I keep thinking about that foundation I ran and skipped across as a child. And now that foundation can be assaulted. All right. So I've been speaking to Taylor Borby, who has the best psychic foundation to approach these issues in his new book boys and oil go out and buy a copy thank you taylor for coming on the show today thanks so much for having mary and for all the good stuff that you do on behalf of us all Open your kitchen drawers and cabinets, folks. There's $100 for your entry of the best mitt or potholder picture. Check out our website, agarts.org, for the rules for our latest contest. So far, we have potholder entries that range from Amish quilt patterns to devils and dragons. We need your mitts and potholders. Our judge, Susan Strawn, PhD in textiles and clothing, We'll put them together as a digital exhibit displayed on our website, a true example of everyday folklore that surrounds us. The deadline's coming soon. It's the summer solstice. And that brings our episode to an end. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brew Ha Ha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Fremartentown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Warner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe and never miss a podcast. Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button. See you next time. Brouhaha. <laughs> <laughs>